So I'm, I'm excited about having, having church on Sunday nights. It's something that in America has really just kind of gone by the wayside over the last couple of decades. Um, and it's a shame because in a time when we probably need church twice as much as what we were getting, we're only getting half as much. Um, I started speaking with Brother Paul, I guess it was late October, early November, about uh, doing some Bible studies um, here at Bethlehem and Gamel. And uh, we had talked back and forth about, well, what would the Bible study be? He had just finished up the, the war room or whatever. And I said, well, why don't we do something like go through a, a book of the Bible? He said, that's a great idea. You want to do it? <laughs> and I said, okay, uh, I can do it. So we decided on John, and then we had to talk about whether it was going to be on Wednesday nights or Sunday nights. Was it going to be here? Was it going to be a Gamel? But I'm, I'm glad we're here at, at our church on, on Sunday nights. And uh, I think this is exciting, and I, I hope uh, we all gain a lot um, from what we're going through, um, that this will be a, a profitable time together. Um, some of you have asked, how long is this going to take <laughs> to get through the book of John? And I was talking with uh, Brother Daryl Bartley last weekend before uh, Cassie and Blake's wedding. We were talking about this study starting up. He said, David, if you're going to do it right, you need to spend at least three weeks in chapter one. And I said, well, that's good. I'm planning on spending four weeks in chapter one. And he said, all right, you got this, kid. And I said, okay. Um, but in all seriousness, we don't want to rush this. Um, John, it's not a complicated book, but there's a lot in it. Um, there is a lot of rich theology. Um, it tells us about who the person of Christ is um, and what our purpose is here. Um, so there's 21 chapters, so at minimum, we're here 21 weeks. But as you know, I've already said some chapters are going to be here more than one week. So short answer, I don't know. Um, but the Gospel of John, I feel, is one of the most important books in the Bible. And uh, it's not that there's books of the Bible that aren't important. But I've often said that there are two books in the Bible that it would do every Christian well to spend a lifetime of study in. And that is the book of Romans. Because the book of Romans talks about the problem of our sin and where we are, why we needed a Savior in the first place. And the book of John, while it talks about all those things, it talks about exactly who that Savior is. And what he is. So when we think of the Gospel of John, we think about Christ. The whole book is about Christ. It's about the person of Christ. It's about the deity of Christ. It's about his power, his authority. It's about his saving work on the cross. It's about his redemption of our souls and the resurrection. And it's about his glory in his final days on this earth. It's also about the disciples and how they followed Christ through good and bad. It's about their ups and downs and how they were not always perfect. And to me, that's one of the best things we can get from the book of John, especially when you, we think of Peter. We think of Peter betraying Christ at the crucifixion and saying, hey, I don't know who he is. And, you know, we all, we all get hard on Peter and we say, Peter, how could you do this? How could you betray Christ? You were with him. You walked with him. You know who he is. But don't we do the same thing? We're hard on Peter, but you know what the great story about Peter is, as we'll see in chapter 21. Christ forgave Peter. And Christ said, Peter, I'm going to make you the leader. God, as Brother Paul mentioned this morning, he uses imperfect people for his perfect purposes. And that we'll see in the book of John. We'll see the other followers of Christ. We'll look at people like Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus in chapter 11. And we'll see the humanity of Christ very deeply when we see him weeping and grieving with Mary and Martha over the loss of their brother. And then see the glory of his power as he raises him from the dead. 
The book of John has some major themes. The overall theme is the deity of Christ, as I've said. We see this theme played out in significant ways. We'll see the signs of Christ in John, and these are the miracles that he performed, whether it be turning the water into wine or the feeding of the 5,000, or, of course, raising himself from the dead. We will see the I am statements of Christ. And this goes back to the Old Testament when Moses was at the burning bush and he asked God, what should I tell them your name is? And he says, you tell them my name is I am that I am. And we will see Christ assert this name upon himself, declaring that he is God. So we'll be taking this study straight through from John 1.1 all the way through the end of chapter 21. We'll work methodically through it. It's not going to be your normal Sunday sermon. We're going to look at church history. We're going to look at Greek words. We're going to look at cultural concepts. And I promise you I'll try my best not to make it boring. Um, the gospel, who wrote it? We call it the gospel of John, but the gospel actually doesn't name its author. So why do we know John wrote it? Why do we think John wrote it? Well, there's a few reasons we can have confidence John wrote this book. The first is the early church testifies that John wrote this book. There was a man named Irenaeus. He lived in the 2nd century, and he testified in his work called Against Heresies that John was the author of this gospel. This is actually pretty significant because Irenaeus, he was directly under a man named Polycarp. Well, that didn't mean much to us. Who was Polycarp? Polycarp served directly under the Apostle John. So the fact that only, we're only one person removed from the apostle himself is saying that the apostle wrote it, that holds some weight. And then uh, we also have external manuscript evidence. The manuscripts, we have thousands of them of the book of John dating all the way back to the third century. Um, some of them are just fragments, some of them are the whole book, but not a single one of them attributes the book to anyone other than John. But then we also see evidence in the gospel itself. It's important to note that John actually never calls himself by name in this gospel because he doesn't want to bring attention to himself. When he refers to himself in this gospel, he's either going to say the disciple or more specifically the disciple whom Jesus loved. Anytime we see the actual name John in this gospel, it's referring to John the Baptist. And so I've mentioned several themes of the gospel, but John also told us that he had an actual purpose for writing this gospel. And that's found in chapter 20 and verse 31. John writes, But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John wants us to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one that was promised. And we can have eternal life by believing in His name. And these are the overall themes, and you can't miss these themes, as we'll see from the first verse all the way to the last. It's these reasons that people actually give out the Gospel of John to unbelievers, to have them as their first exposure to the Bible, because it tells us exactly who Jesus is. But I think we've talked enough about the context and the history of the book. I think we should probably just go ahead and dive right into the text. We're in the first chapter this evening, and we're going to be looking specifically at the first 18 verses. John 1, 1 through 18, it says this, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about that light, that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. 
The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him when he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the title of tonight's message as we look at the prologue, what is called the prologue of the Gospel of John, the message of tonight's title of, mes- title of tonight's message, I'll get it right sometime, is the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. And this is, in my opinion, the single most glorious passage in all of Scripture. And you might object and say, well, what about the crucifixion? What about the resurrection? What about the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2? What about John 3.16? Yes, all of those are great and glorious passages, but the reason I single this passage out is because none of those passages stand without this, the deity of Christ. The reason that this gospel rises and falls on the deity of Christ is that no man could take away our sin. Romans 3, 10 through 11 says, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. There is not one that understands. There is not one that seeks for God. There's not a righteous man. Therefore, no man could save us. It had to be God becoming a man to stand in our place. The Word had to become flesh. And this is actually, the deity of Christ is one of the single most attacked doctrines today. People want to say that they claim they're Christian all over the country, but they adamantly deny the deity of Christ. In fact, in a 2016 survey taken by Lifeway Research and Ligonier Ministries, only 68% of evangelicals strongly affirmed the deity of Christ. 68% of evangelicals. That's not including the unsaved. We, we don't expect them to believe Jesus is God. 68% of those who say they are Bible-believing Christians say they either strongly deny that Jesus is God or they're not sure. Yet in this chapter, we see the deity of Christ plainly stated. So I just want to have some sort of direction or outline we're going in. So the first point of tonight is we're going to look at the deity of the Word. The deity of the Word. Verse 1 states, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning. this I use the English Standard uh, version, and in the English Standard Version, the phrase in the beginning is found ten times in all of Scripture. Of those ten times, four are in reference to the beginning of the reign of a king. Two are in reference to the beginning of a work. The other four all refer to the beginning of creation. And those instances are found in Genesis 1.1, here in John 1, and in Hebrews 1.10. Of course, we all know Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Hebrews 1.10 says this, You, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And then, of course, here in John, we see in the beginning we had the Word. 
But the next phrase is crucial. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, it's important to note, in the original Greek, it does not say he was in the beginning with God. It says this one was in the beginning with God. So why, why do our Bibles in, in a lot of the modern translations say he was in the beginning with God? Well, it's because the context demands it. We're going to see later as we go on through tonight that Jesus is identified as the word. So it's he. He is that one. He is the word. Verses 15 and 17 explain that to us. And in verse 3, it actually begins using the Greek word for he or him, clarifying the word is talking about a person. The word being with God also shows it's two distinct and personal beings, both the Father and the Son. We know the Father, Son, and Spirit, this makes up the Trinity. They all are three. And we may not understand the full intricacies of the Trinity and how God is fully within each of these three persons. It's a mystery to us. We can't fully comprehend it. We could probably be here till doomsday discussing it and never get to the bottom of it. But it's important to note that John is affirming the Trinity at its most basic nature, that there are distinct persons within the Godhead. The fact that Jesus calls, or sorry, John calls Jesus the Word is culturally significant. Back in the time, the Greeks would have understood the, the Greek word logos, which is what we translate as word, to mean the source of logic creative force, and the principal reason in the universe. So we should not confuse this to saying that Jesus is the Word of God as some idea or abstract way of saying that He is somehow the personification of the actual words of God. That's not how they would have understood it. But there are those today that try to claim this, that it's just some Word of God becoming a human to deny the deity of Christ. Jewish readers, they would have understood the Word of the Lord to be the source of divine power in the way that God worked in the Old Testament through the prophets. It was the very source of divine power. So in a real sense, the audience understood, whether they were Jew or Gentile, that Christ is more than just a human. He's the source of divine authority and power. As John emphatically stated, He is God. But John goes even further to not just state that Jesus was God. He emphasizes it in the next verse, in verse 3. It says, All things were made through Him, and without him, not anything made that was not anything made that was made. So again, we look back at Genesis 1:1. In the beginning, God created. But here it says, the Word created. Obviously, that tells us one thing: the Word is God. Jesus is God. He's doubling down on this. It's undeniable. So this also speaks against another idea that we see creeping into the church, and it's more prevalent than you know. They say, well, Jesus was the first created being. That is absolutely and utterly false. Jesus has always been, and He always will be. He made everything, therefore He could not have been made Himself. Verses 4 and 5 continue this, this majesty of Christ. It says, In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And this is going to close the opening declaration of John's declaration of the deity of Christ. He's not finished here. He's going to keep going on through verse 18. But I want to point out something here. As I mentioned earlier, as we go through the book of John, we're going to be talking about I am statements of Christ where Jesus will assert His divine authority. Well, this foreshadows that. And this is going to bring us to our second point, 
is that the word is the light of the world. John 1.4 said uh, that, man, I just lost my spot. In him was life, and this life was the light of men. Well, in John 11.25, the I am statement is, Jesus said to her, this is speaking to Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And in the last parts of verses 4 and 5, we see the foreshadow of another I am statement saying that Christ is the light of the world. Well, this is what John, uh, uh, John said in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 12. And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But let's not overlook the majesty of what's being described here. In Christ was life. Remember, the purpose of John writing this is so that you may believe and that you may have eternal life because of it. We're born dead without Christ. We have no hope without Christ. We're in complete darkness without Christ. There is no good in us. There's no good in the world, despite what people try to think. Good only comes from Jesus Christ. Good only comes from from God. And Jesus, He is that light that shines through the darkness of this world. And we see darkness all around us. We just heard of, what was it, Friday, the Iranian general that was killed in our airstrike. And we hear this top general being killed, this terrorist being killed. And while that may give us a reaction of applause, we need to think about this for a minute. The only reason people like General Soleimani exist the only reason people like bin Laden, people like ISIS, people like Stalin, people like Hitler, and everyone else that is evil within them only exists because of the total darkness of humanity. The fall in Genesis 3, this is something we need to understand. The fall in Genesis 3 was so damaging, so total, so permanent, so radical, that we are in this radical state of hopeless depravity that we have no chance of getting out of without a Savior. But what did verse 5 say? The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. In these dark times, and they are dark, we need to cling to this passage. We need to cling that the light of Christ shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome that light. The darkness cannot overcome that light. The darkness will not overcome that light because we need to hold on to what Jesus said in John 16:33 it says I have said these things to you that you may have peace in me in the world you will have tribulation but take heart I have overcome the world it's a done deal the victory's already won Jesus has won he conquered satan he conquered sin he conquered death Darkness will not overcome this light. Verse 6 begins a transition. It's kind, of, it's kind of an abrupt stop. John says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, like I said, this is an abrupt stop. All of a sudden, John is, is writing about this majesty and glory of the divinity of Christ. And all of a sudden, he's talking about John the Baptist. Why? Seems insignificant at first, but John the Baptist actually is not insignificant. In fact, John the Baptist needed to be written about here because he fulfilled a prophecy in Isaiah 40. 
and that will be verified later in this chapter. But it is of note that John, the Apostle, not the Baptist, this gets really confusing, completely changes gears from the majesty of Christ to talking about a man that was proclaiming him. But like I said, the Baptist is not insignificant. He was divinely sent and appointed by God from birth. Before John was even conceived, God told his parents exactly what his purpose was. It says in Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people who are prepared. So John the Baptist had a divine appointment. He had one sole purpose in life, and that was to declare the Messiah, even though he himself was not the Messiah. As verse 8 said, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about that light. But just as quickly as, as the apostle was writing, he, he switched from the divinity of Christ to John the Baptist. He switches right back. But we have a problem. And that brings us to our third point tonight. The third point is this. The word was rejected. The word was rejected. It says in verses 9 through 11, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people, but did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He, God, Christ, was in the world, yet the world did not know him. His own people did not receive him. Now, this is, this is an absolute tragedy. Because for centuries, the Jews have been looking for the Messiah. They've been promised ever since the time of Abraham that a Messiah would be coming. It would be coming through them. They've been looking for this Messiah, this Savior. And when he arrives, they don't accept him. It's an absolute tragedy. And this was a group of people who had special revelation about who the Messiah was going to be. They knew where the Messiah was going to be born. They knew of what line he was going to come from. All the signs were there, and they still rejected him. Because they had special revelation, because it was through the Jews that God decided to enact his redemptive purposes for mankind. It was through the Jews that we had the writings of the prophets. It was through the Jews that would be the royal bloodline to bring that king of kings. But they missed it. They missed it, and they're still missing it. Why? Because it wasn't how they expected and imagined it to be. And so they rejected it. And this is a sobering fact. Man, left to his own ways, left to his own thoughts, his own judgments, we will never choose God. We won't. Sinful man wants nothing to do with God or the ways of God. He wants nothing to do with what God has planned. He wants it to be done in his own way. This has been true all the way from Adam all the way down to you and me today. And we will see this as we go through John's gospel that God does have a people. In this book, they're called sheep. 
The sheep are the ones who hear him. They are the ones who know Christ, but they have been given to Christ by the Father. And we begin to see that in verses 12 and 13 when it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So not, not everyone rejects this light. You and I know this or we wouldn't be sitting here tonight. But they've been given grace by God to have a change of heart. It is by grace through faith you are saved. It is a gift. You are given that gift of faith and grace to be able to trust Christ. But there's something we must understand. It's a crucial concept. What it says here at the end of that section, those who receive God and are, are born again, they're not born of blood or the will of the flesh. We're, we're not little gods. We don't have some, some racial heritage to God, no bloodline of God. But we also weren't born of the will of man. This is key. Man, as we showed earlier in Romans, does not desire God. There is none that seeks after God. There is no one that is good. That's what Paul told us. We do not come to God through personal desire because it's not our will in our sinful state to choose God. God's will is to choose us. God chooses us. It's not the other way around. If he didn't choose us, we'd have no way of actually accepting him. We were born not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God and God alone. And we see this over again, over and over again in John's gospel. It's not we who choose, but God in his sovereign authority and according to his sovereign purposes chooses us. And he says, you, Charles, you, Janice, you, Nick, come to me. I will give you rest. We don't go to him and say, please take me. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. But I also want to hit on this word believed. It says, those who believed in his name, he gave the right. Now, this word believed, it's not a head knowledge. It's not enough just to believe and say, yes, I believe in Christ. Well, Satan believes in Christ. Satan knows exactly who Christ is. But Satan certainly is not destined for heaven. We know that for sure. The word in Greek is the word pistueo. It's not just a head knowledge, like I said. It means to entrust oneself to an entity in complete confidence and has the implications of full submission and total commitment. We lose a lot in our English translations, don't we? <laughs> we don't get that from the English. But this is one thing that I fear. I fear that a lot of people today believe that they are saved simply because they said a prayer or they filled out a card, or walked down an aisle, or raised a hand, but they never actually turned their life over to Christ. They just made a statement and said, I got fire insurance, I'm good to go. And that never changes them. There's people walking around who are deceived into thinking they're saved. So we need to make sure that this message is clear. It's not just saying, yeah, I believe in Christ. It is professing Him as Lord and submitting to Him as Lord. That's the message we need to bring to people. And the thing to remember is that it's not of anything that man does or will do. It is of God and God alone. This is why we say salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It's 100% God. It's not us. His choice, not ours. But now John transitions again. We've seen him talk about Christ as the Word, the Word as the light, 
the light and the word rejected. And now we see the word became flesh. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And this, in my opinion, is perhaps the greatest verse in all of scripture because of what it implies. God, the creator, the word, he became flesh to live among us. And we need to understand the magnitude of what that actually means. That Christ left his glorious throne. He left his place with the Father, a place of holiness and total purity. And he came to live in flesh like us. To walk where we walk, to see what we see, experience what we experience, to be tempted as we are tempted. In Hebrews it says that he is tempted in every way that we were tempted. Yet he overcame. And that is why he can be our high priest. The difference between Christ and us is that Christ lived the human life perfectly. He was able to keep the fullness of God's law and live without sin. He is the second Adam. Remember the first Adam, he was born perfect too, and he screwed it up. Way to go, Adam. But you know, we would have done the same thing if we were in his shoes. 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. See, Christ, he did what the first Adam couldn't do. He lived perfectly, and because of that, he is able to give us life. <laughs> the mystery is how Christ can both be truly God and truly man. But verse 14, when it says, became flesh, it confirms his humanity after John has clearly already established his deity. The word became in verse 14 is the Greek word genomai. It has the sense of taking on something new, a new nature, or a new condition. Christ was God, and he took on the flesh of man and became like us. He did not give up his deity when he did this, but he gave up his place in glory to live like us. Now, this is important because there were a group of people that believed Jesus was not actually human, but only appeared as human. This is actually a heresy called docetism. He was more of a phantom of sorts is what they say, just an image. In today's technology, they would have say he's just a hologram. But that's not what the text says, and not, that's just nonsense. He became flesh. And Paul discusses this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Equality with God was not something to be grasped because he was already God. The verse back in John continues to say that we have seen his glory. Now, glory is used in Scripture to describe all sorts of things. It's to describe the glory of a kingdom, the glory of flowers and fields, the glory of a king. But John clarifies this glory. It's not just any glory. It's glory as of the Son of the Father. In other words, this is the glory of God in human form. We'll see this explained more when we get to verse 18. But the fact that people still today deny the deity of Christ is absolutely astounding. The fact that only 68% of evangelicals affirm the deity of Christ is astounding. There's no excuse for it. 
if they say they follow the Bible, it's as clear as it can be throughout the entire New Testament. And as I said, without the deity of Christ, we're hopeless for salvation. And the last thing we see in the prologue of John's gospel is the word identified. So that's our last point tonight, the word identified. It says in verses 15 through 18, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. We already spoke of this earlier tonight, but the sole purpose of the life of John the Baptist was to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. Now, John, he had already amassed quite a following. He had disciples of his own. We'll see that uh, next week. But John, he understood his place. He understood his purpose. Jesus Christ ranks before him, even though he was born in human form after him. But John understood Christ was there well before he was. They were actually first cousins. They knew each other from the time they were kids. But John knew that Jesus was more than just his cousin. He knew exactly what his purpose was and declared that mission of Christ. And he declared that identity of Christ. And John the Apostle writes the identity of Christ as identified by John the Baptist. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So verse 17 identifies who the word is, who the light is. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is that word. Jesus is that light. Jesus is God. Moses he was a type of, of foreshadow of Christ. Moses, he led Israel out of physical bondage. Jesus Christ leads the world out of spiritual bondage. Moses gave the truth of the law of God. Christ gave us the grace of God and sacrifice that fulfills that law. The last verse of this section, verse 18, puts the final stamp on the identity of Christ. It says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. This builds on what John is writing about Moses versus Christ already because we look back in Exodus chapter 33. Moses, he's just had the golden calf incident. He's filled with rage. He's now gone back up the mountain. He's seeking God and he says, in verse 18 of chapter 33, please show me your glory. And God said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will be able to see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Moses could not see the full glory of God. It would have killed him. It's too, too pure, too holy. No man could stand against it. He could not see God's face. This is what John was alluding to here in verse 18. Nobody has ever seen God, but Jesus Christ has made him known. Jesus made God known 
because Jesus is God. Jesus holds the full glory of God, and he could be seen just as God could, just as God had to shield his glory from Moses. The flesh of Jesus shields his glory from us so we can look upon Jesus face to face as one of us. So what do we have as far as application from John's prologue? If you don't take anything away, take this. The application is that Jesus Christ deserves all worship and glory because of the majesty of his deity. He is above all things. He has created all things and he deserves and he demands our full submission because without him, we do not have any hope and we're condemned. 